I've been in Functions as a Service since the Lambda developer preview, roughly. I did a calculation because I like the, the unit pico dollars per megabyte second. You have to be pretty good at packing work onto a server to beat Lambda pricing per megabyte. It's actually ridiculously easy to set up an echo skill. Video is an easier problem to break up than a lot of others. So you heard it here first, Netflix, easy. Hey, this is Brian, and you're listening to Jamstack Radio, a bi-weekly series where we discuss the Jamstack, a new way of building websites and apps that are fast, secure, and simple to work with. Jamstack Radio is brought to you by Heavybit, a program dedicated to helping startups take their developer products to market. For more information, visit heavybit.com. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, or if you'd like to suggest a topic, find us on Twitter at Jamstack Radio. So welcome to another installment of Jamstack Radio. Here in the room with me, we've got David Wells once again. Hello. And then on the line, we've got Ryan Scott Brown. Do you want to go ahead and explain what you do day to day and how you got involved in the function as a service space? Yeah, so my day job is I work at Ansible on the cloud modules. Ansible's an automation tool and now owned by Red Hat, but previously its own startup. And the rest of the time I work on the serverless framework, which, as you know, is a JavaScript framework for deploying function-as-a-service type things. And I've been in sort of functions-as-a-service since the Lambda developer preview, roughly. And I actually got into it via static sites, and I, I thought that it was really cool that you could just upload any binary and have your own sort of hosted generator instead of having to install it on like all of your machines. You could just push it up, have the generator run in Lambda. That was actually my first project with Lambda was uh, Hugo and static site generation. Uh, cool. Yeah, so do you use that same sort of build situation using uh, Lambda to host all your Hugo today? Yeah, it's gone through about three revisions. It started as the original project that I made as sort of a toy, and then the open source Hugo Lambda, and then Eric Hammond from Elastic.com made a much nicer static site setup that used uh, code build and code commit. So it was hosting the Git repo, build, the build in Lambda, and then the files on S3, and then serving through CloudFront all in one template. And so I'm now on that. So it's been through a few revisions, but still basically the same setup. Very cool. Yeah, I'm a big fan of Hugo. I've uh, I made the jump from Jekyll and Middleman to now do Hugo. I wouldn't say full time, but I'm I'm pretty excited about it. So yeah. my new projects all start Hugo. Nice. Yeah, and that's what uh, serverlesscode.com is on as well. Is that same cloud formation template? I'm a phenomic man myself. I haven't actually heard of that one. It's all React, man. It's all React. Is it just React? It, does it just pre-render the React and then? Yeah, yeah. So it just does the server-side rendering once and pushes up to you know your CDN of choice. That's actually pretty cool. I'm a front-end neophyte, but uh. <laughs> I can see the value in having a React-type front-end where you can choose where the rendering happens and have maybe Lambda render things and then send them out and on clients that are more powerful, you could do it the other way around. Right. And then the the router picks up on the client side too. So you got like the React router kind of single page appy feel. But very cool. Yeah. Yeah, there seems to be like um not an influx, but it seems like new players in the static site generation game. As of late, it seemed like for the longest time Jekyll has kind of been like the standard static site generator of choice. And uh, we've yeah. got some new players in the game. I recommend checking out staticgen.com. It's maintained by Netlify mostly, it's open sourced. But it basically keeps a list of all the options for you. Yeah. Out Aren't there? there there's like hundred, like over a hundred, right? Now, what does it use? Yeah. So Netlify uses Hugo, 
But staticgen.com is actually Jekyll because it was actually made in that era. Gotcha. And I think Jekyll's at this at this point, if you check out the site, Jekyll's number one. And I think Hugo's like either like number three, I believe. Yeah. So it's up there. Um, Jekyll's definitely the biggest. And they have so many plugins out there too. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a good cool. it's a good community. Yeah. But um I guess uh, to make this less of a, a static site generation show, could you explain more about functions as a service, their use case, and like, yeah, I guess general use cases for why would you grab functions as a service? Uh, yeah, so the use case, I'm going to explain how I usually run things on AWS before functions as a service as sort of a baseline for the kind of work that I usually have to do. Yeah. And that tends to fall into two categories, is the async worker type work, so your video rendering farms, your back-end payment processing things, your general business logic. This has to happen eventually, but the user isn't waiting with a window open work. Yeah. And then your synchronous web application fleet of servers in an auto-scaling group waiting for requests to come in and then pushing responses back out over HTTP through a load balancer. Yeah. And... Function as a service has sort of a place in both of those. With things like API Gateway in AWS, you can serve the synchronous over HTTP method. And with Lambda combined with all the different event sources that you can get inside of AWS, you can turn function as a service into basically the only async worker that you need. And that covers the most common examples, image resizing, and I'm really sick of... Hey, I wrote an imagery sizer examples of function as a service tools, but it is a good workout because it covers basics that you need pretty much anywhere, which is blob storage, compute, and then an output mechanism, and then a way to send notifications. Yeah. Which, if you put those four things together, you're going to describe most kind of backend async type applications. Wow. Cool. It sounds like um, image resizing is the to do MVC. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it totally is. Yeah. Actually. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. It's because like you see how the events trigger each different thing in the pipeline. Whereas before, if it wasn't event driven, you'd kind of have to wire up all that logic yourself and be like pulling for something. Yeah, but everything just kind of happens in sequence. It's very like logical to look at and kind of grok. Yeah, and also image resizing makes for a really good demo because you have something that you know is an image that you can physically see. Yes, this definitely did something. Versus Oh yes, I'm going to demo sending PDF invoices. Yeah. Not fun. Not nearly as fun. <laughs> that is true. I'm just thinking of like a good MVC for showing off this functions as a service, sending PDF invoices. Yeah. Like, I think it just because you mentioned it, I'm gonna go ahead and make that project a, a thing. <laughs> but I was gonna mention you mentioned Phenomic earlier, David, but Gatsby, who's very similar to Phenomic, it's yeah. a React-based static site generator. Kyle Matthews, who started Gatsby, did a really good talk at the GraphQL Summit about using GraphQL as rendering base64 images, so doing that whole pre, not pre-rendering, but basically literally pre-rendering like a base64 image and then presenting the, the actual image itself. So you get that sort of like uh, anticipated loading state that's uh, so popular on the front end. Yeah, yeah. So I, I don't know the actual implementation of what he's doing to use that. But I could imagine a good use case for function as a service is yeah yeah because with lambda you can actually do because API gateway supports binary payloads you can take an API request over HTTP and serve out an image based on that so you can have a service that takes a resolution and then spits an image back out at the correct resolution 
Yeah. So like dynamic PNGs or SVGs or yeah, it's not just resize fifty versions of this image and then I'll get them by URL. It's I will take the URL and generate it on the fly and ship it back down to you. Yeah. A cool demo I saw of that was another serverless tool, Claudia JS. It's GitHub badges. So it'll like based off your username or whatever, it'll generate that SVG and give you back a badge to put in your repo or whatever. But yeah, kind of like the the Travis CI style badges where it's yeah. got something on the other end and then it fills the SVG in with code coverage percentages and things like that. Right, exactly. So I'm going to skip down a couple points down in our talking points. So using something as trivial as image resizing or whatever you use your functions are, what are the cost benefits of using a like Lambda as opposed to an actual server waiting for a request? Yeah, so there's two. Is There's the direct, you're not paying for waiting for requests to come in. So if I've got like a smallish to mid-size application, it's very likely that there's several hours of the day where you're getting, you know, five requests a minute or zero requests a minute on average. And you still have to have a minimum of one server, but a lot of people standardize on a minimum of two for failover. Yeah. And so you're paying at the smallest instance size something like six cents an hour. I don't remember what the costs are exactly, but at the smallest size, you're still paying on a per hour basis, regardless of whether someone's actually using your thing. And same thing for the load balancer. You're paying per hour for the load balancer to exist and be responding to requests and routing them. Yeah. Whereas with a function as a service with API gateway or the equivalent with another provider, you're only paying per 100 millisecond slice of runtime on an instance. Right. And you can decide what size slice you get as well. So... I did a calculation because I like the, the unit pico dollars per megabyte second. So the way that Lambda is measured is you pay per 100 milliseconds, and then the cost per 100 milliseconds is graduated based on the amount of memory you get. So if you get 500 megabytes of memory for 100 milliseconds, that's X dollars. And then for 200 milliseconds, it's double the 100 millisecond cost. And then if you double the RAM, that doubles the cost on the other dimension because you're increasing the amount of memory that you have. Yeah. Is there a, a chart or somewhere There's that... A, yes, I can, yeah. include, I can include a chart that will make a lot more sense than explaining this. the pico dollars per megabyte second. Did you make this chart or is this like the Lambda pricing page or something? So they have the Lambda pricing page. I did a post separately on how you can calculate the number of pico dollars per byte second. Interesting. I want to I want to see where the flip side is where it's like okay, when is it actually more cost effective to run like your own EC2 instance? I know there's a, you know, level that you hit. Yeah, there is. And it's I think 75% utilization on an m4.medium. Okay. You have to be pretty good at packing work onto a server to beat lambda pricing per megabyte. And not to mention the generous free tier. So it's like a million invocations a month for free. Yes. Which is, I mean, you know, most of my weekend projects and what have you would never get anywhere near that kind of utilization. So yeah, you are ignoring the ignoring the free tier, but <laughs> for the sake of argument, let's just ignore that and say that generally AWS, since they're packing both your application that might be getting five invocations a week. And a bunch of other people, they can save on some economies of scale. And then, you know, they put on a profit margin on top of that. So they're not giving it to you at cost. But given that so many applications are, have such low utilization, because, I mean, there's only one Facebook, one Twitter, and one Google out there, right? Indeed. 
until I build the next one. Yeah. <laughs> so like, I think in the room, I think we all have collectively most Lambda experience. But uh, what are the other players in the space as far as functions of the service? I know there are, there's quite a few of them out there, but I'm not sure if they're even like worth looking at. Yeah, so the way that I would categorize it is you got a couple kinds of lock-in when you're talking about function as a service because obviously no one but Amazon can hook into S3 events. So if all your data is in S3 yeah. and you don't want to use Lambda but you want S3 events, you're kind of SOL. Yeah. Unless you want to hook up to SNS and then have your own custom handler and yeah. do all this extra stuff and deal with data transit out of AWS, which is going to cost you money. So let's leave all that aside. But the general players is you have, I think it's just Azure Functions. Yeah, Azure Functions, yeah. And Google Cloud Functions. Yeah, yeah. Google Cloud Functions is only alpha, which I had actually forgotten about because... I asked someone else to try and run something in their account, and they're like, I don't have this. It's just giving me an error. And I guess you, it's because you have to sign up for Alpha, and then they have to grant it to you. Right. So I wouldn't even consider that because it's really unlikely you're going to want to run anything on an Alpha version that actually needs to run. <laughs> and then there's OpenWhisk, which is IBM's open source function as a service, and it relies pretty heavily on Docker. And both you can get it as a service in Bluemix, which is IBM's kind of infrastructure and software as a service amalgamation. Right. And fun fact about OpenWhisk, it just was added to the serverless framework. So check okay. that out. Yeah, I saw that. You guys need to label that because I don't recognize the OpenWhisk logo immediately. I was just thinking about that today, actually. Thank you for also <laughs> corroborating my story. Yeah, because the AWS logo that's on the docs says Amazon Web Services. Yeah. So if you even if you're new... I saw that today. I just got back from vacation. I saw that. I didn't put that up. So I got to... <laughs> Go back and fix that. Yeah, you got to take a page out of bat labels, <laughs> label everything. Exactly. So there's that. And then there's also a crop of Kubernetes-based function as a service, which are on Kubernetes and then have various APIs and invocation strategies. And I feel like that's a space that's going to be really, really fragmented because there's currently function, fission, I saw another new one today, and I've already forgotten the name. And this is all running on Kubernetes? All of these are running on Kubernetes, it's, yeah. It seems crazy to me. You know, you have to manage your Kubernetes fleet. I don't know, it seems non-serverless to me. Well, it depends what part of the word serverless you're trying to get, because right. as, as you know, there have been companies that have started using serverless as a company name too, which <laughs> kind of makes it confusing. <laughs> Guilty. Yes, and... There's a lot of confusion over what people mean when they say serverless. Do you mean, oh, this is functions as a service? In which case, you can do the basically the OpenStack version of that, which is run function as a service and provide that API, but provide it using your in-house ops team and expose it to your developers. And to them, it's the same. Right. Because they get the same level of self-service and all that fun stuff. So in a sufficiently large company, running your own Kubernetes is serverless. Right, indeed. In a four-person company, it is not serverless because one person is probably working on, is probably... Spent a year setting it up and then running it, yeah. Kubernetes is <laughs> exactly. not that hard to set up. All right? I know, I'm giving it a hard time. Another one that I would also throw out there is uh, webtask.io from Auth0. So oh, I wasn't aware. Very kind of similar setup. 
Yeah, so isn't that preview? I didn't think that was they they don't really talk about it that much, but it's I mean, very similar to, you know, Lambda. Yeah. I think it's a little bit harder to actually deploy code up there. They have a they have a web GUI yeah. and kind of a limited subset of the like node ecosystem that you can use. Yeah, they don't let you customize libraries unless you use like Webpack to dump everything into one JavaScript file. Yeah. Which not recommended because they also have a size limit, which is smart. I'm not saying yeah. that, you know they need to remove that, but there are limitations there. And then PubNub Blocks is one that I've actually been playing around with. It's very different because it doesn't have like the API gateway style front end or a lot of integrations for incoming messages because it just leverages the PubNub messaging system. So anything that can hook up to PubNub messaging, you can hook up to a block that'll then run. Interesting. It definitely AWS, like Lambda, is the biggest player in the space. Um, yeah, by a really wide margin. But it's it's really intriguing to see like all the other players. Like I think they're heavily investing in that. Yeah, it's because they see kind of the benefits, whether it's cost savings yeah. or yeah. yeah. Also, in the not actually serverless realm, Azure has a program where you can buy a giant instance. And then point web task to it. So you're running web tasks, but you're also selecting the instance. And so if you need to chew through a huge number of jobs, you can run web tasks on servers that you provision. So if you need like a GPU or something, mm. which in Lambda, there's no real answer for. If you need more than, I forget the max RAM in Lambda, I think it's 1500 megabytes. If you need more than that, you're SOL on Lambda. Whereas with Azure, you can. Just buy a bigger machine and then shove webtask on it. Right. Same thing with all these open source ones too, because you're selecting where to run it. Indeed. And if you need a job like longer than five minutes, there's weird workarounds with Lambda, but it's not super straightforward to run a really long running task. Yeah, the best solution I've found for that is actually to use ECS because you can kick off a Lambda function, and then if you have some kind of an evaluation method. And you can evaluate whether a job is going to take a long time or not in the Lambda. The Lambda can kick off an ECS task to do the job if it thinks it's going to take too long. Yeah. And so you end up with the same code that's running both in Lambda and on ECS. And you can deploy them in tandem. It's actually pretty cool because the container registry tag, you can sync it up with the Lambda version. So version 4 on both of those can be the same code. Yeah, that is interesting. I I saw um, this might have been from reInvent or something, but it was Netflix. They were talking about their video, basically transcribing pipeline, where they would take a video uploaded by a you know movie studio X Y Z, break it into tiny little chunks, and then basically do parallel processing in all these different lambdas, and then put it back together on the other side. I thought that was pretty interesting, and and like another kind of use case of lambda to. Basically, spin out an infinite, and I'm doing bunny ears, infinite, like kind of yeah. number of processes to come together to do one job. So that's kind of interesting. Video is one of the, I'm not going to say easy because obviously at, at a sufficient scale, all easy problems are really hard. <laughs> but video is an easier problem to break up than a lot of others. Right. Just because ultimately you're sending one frame at a time. Indeed. And the smallest unit you can break down into is a unit of one frame, or I guess for some encodings, the interval between keyframes is the smallest unit. It depends. Yeah. So you heard it here first Netflix, easy. <laughs> whoa, whoa. <laughs> wow. There's definitely, there's a, there's a ton of other, I think, use cases we haven't really touched yeah. on. Yeah. One that I wanted to 
talk about is just today, actually, I was re- Airbnb released a new project called Stream Alert that's basically an ingester over a couple of different service options that will do alerting rules over arbitrary data. So you can take in Kinesis streams, SNS, S3, direct API hits, Logstash, and it processes it all in Lambda and then can send out alerts based on rules that you select to webhooks, Slack, other S3 buckets, PagerDuty, whatever. Oh, that's pretty cool. They just released this today? Yeah. Nice. I was reading about it uh, while I was eating lunch uh, earlier today. So, wow. yeah, it looks cool. Sounds like there's a lot of stuff releasing like <laughs> in the last 24 hours. Yeah, there's a lot happening. Obviously, just uh, yesterday, serverless released v1.6. There's, as I mentioned, that Kubernetes function as a service that was I was reading about yesterday. There's a lot of stuff that's more stable. Yeah. But I think that what's interesting about things like Streamalert is since you're not running any servers or long-lived resources, it's just resources in AWS like event hookups, functions, and configuration. It makes it a lot easier to distribute open source software when you limit the runtime environment in that way, if that makes sense. Because now you don't have to worry about Oh, they, they want to run it on Ubuntu 14.04 versus I developed it for Red Hat Enterprise Linux 7 versus my friend develops on a Mac versus someone else has an Ubuntu VM that hasn't been updated in four years and they want to run it there. It eliminates like an entire class of problems, which I think is kind of cool. Is this stream alert from Airbnb? Is it kind of like a it's pulling everything into a centralized log, like a Kafka-esque system? Or um, I haven't looked at the internals. I was just looking at their their rule language. Gotcha. Primarily. So it's not pulling it into a centralized log. All the data hits their lambdas, and then if it meets rules, it will trigger alerts. Right, right. And so I don't know what they're using for scratch store under the hood. It's probably Kinesis, given that their instructions don't say anything about you having to set up anything particular. Right. So yeah, David uh, sent me a use cases for serverless and functions. We mentioned a couple of them. One that I always think of is form processing, like being able just to process form data. Seems pretty straightforward. It's the one use case I've actually used Lambda for. Oh, nice. So mm-hmm. uh, actually, one of two. The other one's, um, I almost said it, but Amazon Echo. I know their backend is all yeah. functions as a service. Yeah, if you've uh, played with Lambda at all, it's actually ridiculously easy to set up an Echo skill. Yeah, it's dead simple, and there's like a lot of boilerplates out there too as well, just to get started. Like even if you don't want to write JavaScript, like you just plug and play your different like words to say. Yeah, yeah. I just got an Echo like maybe two weeks ago, and I still haven't set up a skill. I'm still like amazed at how good the speaker is, and like. <laughs> and I'm just I'm paranoid to set up my own custom skill. But, yeah, I uh, can imagine the the use case getting more broader with IoT being more of a thing. Like now, everybody's got a light bulb yeah. in their house. Well, not everybody, but a lot of people who have went down the Echo route have light bulbs that are smart, and then et cetera, et cetera. So right. I, yeah, I feel like for me, it's going to be really hard to improve on the light switch. <laughs> I don't know. I don't often find myself sitting somewhere. And thinking, man, if only I could turn on the lights without getting up. That very rarely happens to me. Yeah. Wow. 
Well, you don't live in my house then. So I saw some uh, Alexa skills. One was uh, asking when the next bus was, and it would go and scrape an XML document from you know some legacy API. Yeah, and it was a lot of them were around scraping, so going, yeah. which is kind of another use case which you can run Phantom JS or like any kind of custom binary. Any with probably an asterisk after it, mm-hmm. but basically where they would go scrape some data from a website, and then you know the Echo would say it out or whatever. Yeah, you can do all kinds of stuff. I have a Scikit-Learn running in a Lambda, which is kind of neat. You just pack up the model and the Scikit-Learn library, and you're off to the races. It's pretty cool. What is that? The Scikit Scikit-Learn. It's a Python machine learning library, and I mean, depending on how detailed your model is and your data size, so lots of asterisks, especially because of the memory size limit and the scratch disk size limit. The scratch disk is limited at 512 megs, and then memory is 1,500-something megs. And as long as your model fits on the temp space and your data fits in RAM in that size, you can do some pretty cool machine learning stuff. So if you train the model outside of Lambda, so using ECS or some other, uh, wherever else you're training things, you can then pack that model up and then react to incoming events in Lambda. So you can make use of those triggers and save on you know idle costs and things. And then have your full model operating in Lambda. Yeah, that's a good point that using Lambda or like any kind of function as a service, it, it is kind of stateless. And again, I'm doing bunny ears, but... As Ryan's mentioning, there is a temporary storage and lambdas do get reused, but you can't necessarily rely on that. So just be aware of that. But there is that temporary scratch space to store temporary data or when you're connecting to a database like DynamoDB or what have you, opening that connection outside of the function uh, can be reused. Yeah, there's some kind of technical scoping asterisks there, definitely. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Um, I've been bitten by if you don't delete things out of your temp space, you can fill it up. Like if all of your functions leave, you know, a one megabyte file in temp space and no one's deleting it, you'll eventually fill up the temp space for that container. Does that does that error out when you try and write to the disk with no space? Yeah, it does. Oh yeah, (laughs) indeed. It's 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 a real pain to track down too because if you've got like fifty warm containers all serving functions, it's sometimes hard to figure out that all of these errors that you're getting have the container they're running in in common. Because CloudWatch aggregates the log streams by container, but if you are taking your CloudWatch logs and shipping them to an external system like a Kibana Logstash cluster, you don't see the log stream immediately, and so you don't always connect it immediately if you're not thinking about it. Gotcha. One of my favorite use cases, at least, is like just setting up a cron job. So it's so easy to schedule Lambda to run, you know, every third Thursday of the month or whatever, depending on your cron syntax, ninja skills. But um, yeah, it's so easy. Hey, they have helper docs. Yeah, yeah. I prefer the simple syntax for writing cron jobs, but yeah, it's just super easy. And that's like you don't have this machine just sitting there idly, paying hourly. So if yeah, you wanted yeah. to set up some, you know, really simple reminder. You don't have to pay $8 for this box that might be running a bunch of different cron jobs. but Yeah, I've used that for sending out emails to users because users can schedule emails to go out. And if you use SES and Lambda, you can construct individual emails out of a template. And then Lambda will send the individual emails like with whatever customizations for each recipient. Yeah. So you can build your own kind of... I'm not going to say MailChimp-like, because MailChimp has way more features than that. But (laughs) 
if you just need to send out a form email and you're handy with templates, you can make a Lambda function that does that really, really easily. Yeah. There's a company called Moonmail, moonmail.io. It's basically like they're trying to recreate uh, you know, what MailChimp does, but at you know, a fraction of the cost because you're only paying for what you use. Yeah, they're another one of those open source software that you can deploy right. based on, in their case, a cloud formation template. StreamAlert is uh, Terraform, I think. Uh, gotcha. Yeah, so cron jobs is the one thing that I still embarrassed that I, I still do on Heroku, which I, I rebuild the same app every year, which is basically tell me the home game, baseball game in the Bay. Um, so I can avoid the BART. I think I've talked about it on the podcast before, but it's called Hustlin'. And uh, I'm going to be real rebuilding it again when spring training starts up again. And uh, I have a cron job to tell me, send a notification to my phone to let me know if there's a home game that day. So this sounds like a really good use case for a yeah, Lambda for function sure. instead of paying for Heroku. Yeah, that would that would be perfect for avoiding the bar on home games or making sure you go to the bar <laughs> yeah, on home yeah, games. Hey guys, how was a sports ball today? <laughs> That's a good idea. That yeah. and uh, like, are you paying for that Heroku instance right no, now? No, I basically it's I a free one. I'll use it for the first half of the season. I've only done it two years since I've lived in the Bay, so I'll pay for the first half of the season because usually rain delays and yeah. um, schedule changes will mess up my entire scraping of ESPN.com. Um, mm-hmm. By the way, you can get all sports data from ESPN.com because everything's in HTML tables. So super easy to scrape. And then basically I just need to update it to make sure that if the if days change and stuff like that, just the cron job just checks that for me. Nice. Um, but it sounds like I'll be doing Lambda this year um, yeah. for this season. We got a good example. GitHub.com slash service slash examples. There's a cron example with your name on it, man. All right. Really? It says B Dougie on there. <laughs> I'll change it today. So All right, we'll. cool. Awesome. So we're actually hitting pretty close to time. So I'm actually gonna we're not gonna get to the the last project, that string alert project to talk about. But if you want to mention it for as a pick, Ryan. But as overall, I guess I'll ask both of you guys, as far as function as a service, I think I might know the answer, but how do you feel about function as a service as a future? Do you think it's going to be popular to increase, decrease, stagnant? I think it's going to be getting a lot more popular, but I also think that the alternatives of running things yourself and also containers are going to gr- I feel like this is one of those situations where all of the players are going to experience growth. Because the overall market is getting so much larger. Cool. Yeah, indeed. Like, I feel like it's a pretty safe bet to bet on growth for all three of those yeah. categories. I'm very glad you asked that question and you asked it in that way because I have the perfect answer. I heard this was actually uh, from Seth Varga over at Terraform. He got asked a question like that. And he was like, Do I think serverless has a future? No, I think it is the future. <laughs> and I was like, And there was like a mic drop. And I was like, Oh man, that was great. But no, in all honesty, yeah, like Ryan said, it, all these spaces are growing. And I think as it gets easier and easier for developers to kind of get over this initial, there's kind of an educational gap right now. Like, not everyone's familiar with using AWS or IBM OpenWhisk or Microsoft Azure, et cetera. So, as that kind of education gap closes, more and more developers will start building their apps like in this kind of event driven way. I think outside of a education gap, there's also a pretty big tooling gap in things like monitoring. Yeah, there's a lot going on in monitoring, but I think that right now, if you have something that's really complicated, you're not going to beat the existing install on your server APM tools in serverless. At least not right now. Yeah, there is additional complexity that comes with kind of breaking your if you even if you're using microservices for now you're breaking them into smaller chunks functions like. 
there's a little bit of overhead, but I think, yeah, with like increased tooling, hopefully that will lessen. I'm bullish on all fronts. Yeah, no doubt. Awesome. So with that being said, we're going to move into picks. So things that you're jamming on, uh, things that get you going. This can be tech-related, non-tech-related. And David, did you have picks already? I'm thinking about my picks right All now. Right. Well, while you're thinking, I'll actually go first then. I'm actually pretty excited about the, the term progressive web apps. It came around like at the Google Chrome Web Summit. Um, actually, if you are a progressive web app expert, please reach out and come on the podcast. If not, we'll probably have somebody on very shortly. But um, I'm getting into the idea of service workers and also just in general, just like making sure my lighthouse rating for my apps are really good. Uh, we just went through this process of upgrading a basic, basically static, just a lot of JavaScript that's happening in the app, but we just uh, put it up against the lighthouse and improved it using Netlify's like built-in features. And it was pretty straightforward. So I am very bullish. Uh, I think you didn't check out the Google Chrome Summit progressive web app to get the details on what it's all about. I think I'm going to probably do a conference talk shortly, or maybe at least a meetup talk. Who knows? Uh, whoever accepts my talks, <laughs> please accept them. And then as far as that, I do want to pick a TV show that I watched, I binge watched actually, caught up really quickly, which is Doctor Who. I never heard of it up until like two years ago. And uh, yeah, I know people are probably like, what? But the podcast came out about two years ago calling Catching Up with Doctor Who, where they basically watch every episode of Doctor Who and kind of explain it. Um, they actually fell off really quickly around like the beginning of Matt Smith, which is like, I guess, the more modern doctor. I think he's like number three. Yeah, is he the most recent or is he the previous? Uh, he's the one before the most recent. Okay. So basically, I, I caught up in like two years of all the backlog. And now I'm up to date with like, as of this year, I'm up to date with whatever the latest, the Christmas episode that came out this past Christmas. So I am now up to date. Uh, and I think it's, it's kind of corny uh, as far as a show and sci fi. But because of that, that's what makes a show good. So it's got like a cult following uh, because of that as, as well. So if you're into like sci fi and cheesy British comedies, I highly recommend checking out Doctor Who. Yeah, they have some great humor. I love Doctor Who. <laughs> cool. Ryan, did you have any uh, picks? Yeah, I have two picks. Pick one is ServerlessConf, which is in Austin, Texas this April. Is Austin at Serverless going to be at ServerlessConf in Austin? I, probably. I think I'm going too. Are you going, Ryan? Oh, yeah, I'm going. That, that's why it's a pick. Uh. I, can't, I can't pick it and not go. <laughs> and then my second pick is the International Rescue Committee which is uh, an organization that helps refugees that need resettlement and asylum in different countries. Cool. Oh, nice. Just given kind of current political climate. Yeah. David, do you have any picks? Yeah, so... Stalled enough? Stalled enough. I actually found it. I'm, I'm, so I'm reading a book right now. This was published back in February 2015 by O'Reilly, but it's called Building Microservices, but it's, again, addressing that kind of, I think, educational gap of how you would actually break down a monolithic system into tinier pieces, which plays very, very nicely with this whole kind of serverless you know, mentality we've been talking about. And then the other pick is, again, Phenomic.io, I don't work for Phenomic, it's an open source project, but I'm in love with this uh, static site generator. And since you mentioned progressive web apps, it comes like out of the box with service workers. Oh, really? So if you, yeah, I was, so I was flying back from, I went to Cabo for my birthday. I'm not going to say how old I am, but it's depressing. <laughs> but basically on the plane, you know, I pull up serverless.com. I don't have Wi Fi though. Boom, it's working because it's all cached via service worker. 
So if you're ever on a plane and you want to read the serverless docs, you can. Well, if you're ever on a plane and you've loaded them up before. Yeah, yeah, asterisk. Yeah, <laughs> indeed. <laughs> but uh, yeah, those are my two picks. Awesome. I need to take a serious check out uh, of Phenomic. They have a couple of boilerplates that are out there that I, I built uh, some yeah. quick like templates out yeah. just to proof them with Netlify. But I need to check that out. Also, I need to check out even more service workers. I'm looking to. I, I like the idea of like pulling up your app with no internet on your phone and seeing something. Like yeah, even yeah. if it's something not useful, at least seeing something. Right. So I think uh, at least having something as simple as that, where you visit some site, you don't need to see like a. Google can't connect to this page, but rather send right. like you have no internet. So I like that use case. Yeah, I think the there's a Google conference coming up, and they they're they're all about the progressive web app. Oh, yeah, they're pushing it hardcore. Yeah, the Polymer team's pushing that as yeah, well. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. So I'm sure they'll talk more about it there. <laughs> awesome, cool. Well, David, uh, thanks for coming in and filling thanks in. Thanks for having me. And then Ryan, thanks for coming in and talking about functions as a service. I think uh, we all feel very educated now. Indeed. Right on. Thank you guys for having me. Cool, and uh, continue to spread the jam. That's all the time we have for today. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, or if you'd like to suggest a topic, find us on Twitter, at Jamstack Radio. To learn more about Heavybit, visit heavybit.com. And while you're there, check out their library. It's packed with amazing talks on sales, marketing, product, and general management from founders of developer tools companies and other industry leaders. 